This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Did you miss the Notorious Bakersfield podcast? I know some of you did because I got emails. Where were you? In case you didn't notice, I took a couple of weeks off to work on some other podcast projects that I'll be announcing in a few weeks. Oh, and I worked on this year's Halloween tour. I'll be announcing more details about that as we get closer to October. Before getting started telling you about this week's Notorious Bakersfield story, I'm going to answer a listener's question. Hello, Robert. This is Lamar Brandiski, and I do have a question for you. I was wondering if you've ever come across evidence that you would feel compelled to turn over to the police or to the prosecuting attorney's office, period. It would seem that you may find things out years later that were not known before. I thoroughly enjoy listening to your recordings and appreciate the time and effort you take to do it. Thank you very much. Lamar here. Thank you, Lamar, for that question. Have I ever come across evidence that I felt compelled to turn over to the police or DA's office. To date, no, that hasn't happened yet, but I certainly would if it ever did happen. I have notified the police regarding a homicide in another state that shared a similarity to a local murder I covered here on Notorious Bakersfield. Both are unsolved and probably not connected in any way, but I felt that the similarity was significant enough that if I were investigating these cases, I'd want to check into it, check it out, make sure they weren't connected, but that's the only time. And I would, if I, you know, if I did run across uh, something that I thought was significant. Thanks for your question, Lamar. If you have a question you'd like to ask me and have me answer on a future notorious Bakersfield episode, visit NotoriousBakersfield.com. Press the microphone icon and record your message or your question. This feature doesn't always work on uh, phones. If it doesn't work on your phone, jump on your computer and try it there. Remember, I welcome suggestions for future stories. If you have a story idea, you can contact me through the website, NotoriousBakersfield.com. Click the contact link to send me a message. And while you're at NotoriousBakersfield.com, you can show your support. Click the support link to buy me a cup of coffee. Be sure to follow the Notorious Bakersfield social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Pictures related to each episode, including this one, are posted to those social media pages. Eight-year-old Jason was at his babysitter's house on May 16, 1978. 
That afternoon, young Jason walked over to a neighbor's to see if his young friend Jeremy could play. The guy answered the door. Had a blue hat. He had the blue work shirt uniform on, and I believe it was dark blue pants. Telling me that uh, uh, Jeremy couldn't play. I asked if Jeremy was home. Somebody said, "Yeah, he couldn't play." Something to that effect. To me, I mean, I don't know uh, who else was in there or nothing, but he just said no, that he couldn't play. I went back across the street to the babysitter's house. Jason's friend couldn't play that day because he was dead likely bludgeoned to death by the same man who answered the door. This is The Sledgehammer Murders. Dennis Holland began working at Hopper Incorporated in 1975, about the same time he met and married Teresa, a single mother to a young son named Jeremy. In 1977, the couple welcomed a son who they named Adam. The family lived in a modest home in the 4300 block of Gordon Street near Union Avenue and White Lane. Dennis worked at Hopper Incorporated, and Teresa supplemented the family's income by babysitting neighborhood kids. Sometime in April 1978, Dennis became acquainted with a new hire at Hopper Incorporated named Carl Hogan. The two men worked in separate departments, but their paths crossed when they took breaks or during their lunches. When Dennis Holland got word that his new co-worker needed transportation, he offered to sell a motorcycle to him. On May 6, 1978, Carl Hogan and his wife dropped by the Hollands' house to take a look at this motorcycle. During this meeting, the two families discovered they had some things in common. Both couples had infants. Both families belonged to the same church denomination. In fact, Carl Hogan was a lay minister, but hadn't started attending services here in Bakersfield. Dennis and Teresa Holland invited the Hogans to church with their family someday. During this meeting, Dennis gave Carl a demonstration ride and let him take the motorcycle for a test drive. Carl had never owned a motorcycle, so Dennis went over the maintenance this bike required. The type and brand of motor oil it used, stuff like that, the basics. The men agreed on a price, $550. Carl Hogan only had $300, but they agreed he'd pay the balance of $250 from his next Hopper paychecks. Dennis wrote up a bill of sale with this payment arrangement spelled out, and both men signed it. A few days later, while at work, Carl informed Dennis that the bike had stalled on him a couple of times. Dennis told him to bring the bike by his house sometime, and he'd take a look at it. On May 16, 1978, Dennis worked his normal 6.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. shift. He drove from Hoppers to an optometrist appointment. After that, he went home. The front yard of the Holland house was typical of a family with young kids. Bicycles, tricycles, skateboards normally littered the grass and walkway. When he pulled into the driveway, he noticed something unusual. His stepson, Jeremy, was usually out in the front yard playing with other neighborhood kids. 
On this particular day, there weren't any kids in the yard. Also, the drapes to the front window that looked out onto the front yard were closed. That was uncharacteristic for his wife, Teresa. She normally left the drapes open until the sun went down. Carl opened the front door. As soon as he stepped inside, out of the corner of his eye, he saw Carl Hogan, his co-worker, lunge towards him. Carl swung a sledgehammer at Dennis's head. Dennis bobbed, and the hammer missed his head by inches. Dennis yelled, quote, What are you doing? You must be crazy. Carl replied, quote, You must be crazy. I'm just doing some work on your house. Still holding the sledgehammer, Carl started walking towards the kitchen, mumbling to himself. He then stopped and started walking back towards Dennis. Dennis jumped out of the doorway. He saw a neighbor across the street. He yelled for the man to call the sheriff's office. When the neighbor came back across the street to the Holland house, the two men cautiously entered. From what they could see from the front door, the back door had been left open and Carl Hogan was nowhere in sight. Two young girls, however, ages three and four, emerged from the hallway. There were two girls Teresa had been babysitting. Dennis grabbed the girls, ran out the front door, and put them in the front yard. He rushed back into the house. Inside, Dennis found his 24-year-old wife, Teresa, and his four-year-old stepson, Jeremy, dead. Still alive but critically injured was his one-year-old son, Adam. All three suffered severe head injuries. Young Adam was rushed to Mercy Hospital with multiple skull fractures. Sheriff's deputies located Carl Hogan several blocks from the Hollands residence. When he was apprehended, Carl Hogan had bloodstains on his pants and boots. He was also in possession of a steak knife and camera that belonged to the Hollands and two $20 bills that were missing from Teresa's purse. Law enforcement at the time described the crime as one of the bloodiest death scenes in Bakersfield's history. The autopsy on Teresa Holland revealed she had died from multiple skull fractures delivered by a blunt object. Sheriff's investigators believed that blunt object was a four-pound sledgehammer. Teresa's autopsy also revealed she suffered a stab wound to her back, superficial stab wounds to her throat, and what were described as defensive wounds to her hands. The coroner stated it appeared Teresa Holland grabbed the knife blade to defend herself and it was pulled away with such force it caused a deep gash in her hand. Jeremy's bludgeoning was so severe, coroner investigators were unable to determine how many blows were inflicted to his head. Funeral services were held for Teresa Holland and her son, Jeremy Montoya, two days later. Both mother and son are buried together at Hillcrest Cemetery. One-year-old Adam Holland suffered critical injuries but survived. Doctors stated at the time that he'd likely have permanent brain damage. Law enforcement initially claimed Carl Hogan confessed to the assaults. The accused killer's trial began in late 1978 and continued into 1979. 
At trial, expert psychological testimony was introduced, which indicated that the killings were inconsistent with Carl Hogan's personality. When he took the witness stand to testify in his own defense, he maintained that he was innocent of the charges against him. According to Carl Hogan, on the day of the crime, he got off work early to go to a doctor's appointment. When he was in the vicinity of Union Avenue and White Lane on his way to the appointment, the motorcycle broke down. Realizing he was near the Hollins' house, he walked over to see if Dennis was home. He claims he visited with Teresa for a while, then walked back to where the motorcycle was broken down. Carl Hogan claimed that when he left the Holland residence, everything was normal. He walked back to the motorcycle and tried starting it again. No luck. So he says he walked to the Holland house again. Hogan claims it was this second visit that he discovered the crime scene. He said between the time he left to the time he came back that someone other than himself came into the Holland house and wrecked havoc. He maintained that he discovered the victim shortly before Dennis Holland returned home, that he was overcome at the scene and was confused by it all. Carl Hogan testified that he got the bloodstains on his pants and boots when he dropped to his knees to pray for the victims. Although he admitted he grabbed the sledgehammer when he heard the sounds at the front door, he denied swinging the hammer at Dennis. Oh, the steak knife he was in possession of when he was apprehended, he claimed he grabbed that at the crime scene for self-defense. And the camera, he claims that Teresa gave that to him when he was over there visiting. It was a good story, but the jury didn't buy it. They convicted Carl Hogan for the homicides of Teresa and Jeremy and the assault on Adam. That same jury sentenced the convicted murderer to death. Carl Hogan was sent to death row at San Quentin. In October 1980, while in the prison's exercise yard, Carl Hogan was assaulted and stabbed three times. He survived his wounds and went on to appeal his conviction. The California Supreme Court overturned his conviction and he was retried for the crimes. His defense was the same as his first, that he didn't harm anyone. He stumbled on the crime scene. It was a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was a good Christian. This crime went against everything he believed in. Even the prosecutor at the time, Steve Towser, told the media it was a strange case. Carl Hogan had no record and was a lay minister in his church. Even though the prosecution never established a motive, they felt strongly the physical evidence was irrefutable. Again, a Kern County jury didn't buy his defense and found him guilty of murder and assault a second time. This time, the convicted murderer was sentenced to life in prison without parole. I should mention here, Carl Hogan's wife believed in his innocence. She publicly supported him and said she couldn't imagine her husband doing such a thing to a child. In 1994, while at the California Correctional Institution in Tatchby, Carl Hogan was rushed from his cell to the prison hospital. He was having trouble breathing and having chest pains. He died 24 minutes after arriving at the medical facility. Carl David Hogan was 40 years old when he died. 
the devout Christian maintained his innocence until his death. Resources used to research this story, the Bakersville Californian, caselaw.com, and of course, Jason, who is now adult, but in 1975 was a young boy who went over to his friend's house. This is Robert Peterson. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with another Notorious Bakersfield story. Have a good week.